This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. I'm Sam and I'm joined today by Steve Evans. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Sam. It's good to be here. Steve is the owner and editor-in-chief of Artemis and Reinsurance News, two extremely popular, in fact, the most popular insurance publications on the planet. We usually begin with a bit of an introduction. Steve, last time we were together, we were, dare I say it, I'm not sure we're going to win any hearts and minds with our listeners, but we were on the back of a boat in Monaco at a conference. The weather's very different today. Thank you for trekking in from Brighton to a very wet, miserable London. You began your career, well, you've always been in technology. Absolutely. Yeah. Early on in the internet days? Early days of the internet, yep. Yeah. I was uh, very lucky. My first proper career job in 1995-ish, I happened to apply for a job for an internet startup and I had no real idea of what that thing was. <laughs> and it turned out everything they did was for the insurance industry. And so I, I got a position there, learned to develop websites. Actually, most of my focus was on content development and marketing and managing these services that we ran. We built websites for people in the Lloyd's market. We built one of the biggest brokers, Client Extranets. We built some really clever technology around weather derivatives trading that we sold to the London futures market at one point and fuzzy logic technology for personal injury claims. So it was uh, InsureTech before InsureTech was a thing. And one of the things we built at the time was Artemis, which was essentially developed as a platform to focus on where the capital markets were getting involved in reinsurance underwriting. And we saw financial technology as something that alongside data and information would transform insurance and reinsurance. And obviously very pleased to say that Artemis is still here today and has over 60,000 readers a month. So it's, um, it's clearly been a driving force in the industry, this wave of sort of financial innovation and pleased to see the InsureTech wave because that shows that the technology side of things is now advancing as well, which is much needed in the industry. Um, so I've, I've been through yeah, all internet and technology-based roles in insurance and reinsurance and then had a few years where I went off and did online travel and other e-commerce type consultancy and then went back to Artemis and relaunched it in sort of 2008 or nine built that up and now we do a couple of conferences a year one in New York and one in Singapore and then launched reinsurance news about two years ago and that now has a larger readership than Artemis we did about 77,000 unique readers in October and the idea with that is just to build a really big powerful platform for the industry to leverage very cool thank you so yeah from early stage internet to business building I guess fascinating for our listeners to hear your opinion on how the industry's changed. I guess what I'm not asking is for you to summarise everything you've ever written in Artemis and Reinsurance News <laughs> over the years. But yeah, what are some of the trends you've seen and what do you think the biggest market shifts have been in the insurance industry? Sure. I mean, there's been numerous and, and as we all know, they're accelerating at the moment. I guess the first one would be the entrance of the capital markets as a, a pool of capital where I guess the investors realised that there was other ways to access insurance risk than just investing in equities, which gave you a purer return without any of the moral hazard or the correlation with financial markets. The fact that the pension funds are now so involved in the insurance businesses, I think, is Absolutely. a clear sign of the success. Yeah, I mean, pension funds have been in, in the industry forever as equity investors, but now 
they're increasingly just directly allocating capital to reinsurance contracts, which enables them to get this pure return that they actually appreciate the most. So yeah. it's an interesting um, development and one that's actually sort of accelerating things in the industry as well, I guess. The other thing that I've seen sort of within that time is the sort of the, the development of the risk modeling technology as well. So as the catastrophe risk models improved, it's enabled better access to the risk, essentially better understanding of the risk, which has helped investors get comfortable. But it's also helped people to evolve the product offering by protection in different ways as well, gain greater transparency on exposures. And I'm hoping that that will continue. I mm-hmm. think um, the next wave of technology is going to help people buy coverage in a different way again, and that will be a further shakeup for the industry. I guess the other area that the industry's changed is the the focus on efficiency, the focus on cost, part of which has been driven by the capital markets because they've essentially come in with a more efficient and lower cost of capital than a traditional reinsurance model. And they've really forced the big insurers and reinsurers to start to bring this capital on board as a partner for their underwriting. And we now see companies that 15 years ago would have underwritten pretty much everything on their own equity balance sheet. And now they might be underwriting half of it on a third party vehicle collateralized by a bunch of pension funds. It's a really, really different model, but it's actually providing efficiencies right the way down to the policyholder. Really interesting. You're talking about risk modeling and the future opportunity around coverage, distribution, lowering those costs and, and making things more efficient. Some of the firms out there, some of the big firms are doing some really interesting things. Uh, if you look at, well, I guess I would call it you know, in, the, in the financial services industry, we call it fintech tourism. It was kind of the first wave of people that do a lot of the pr stuff and you know, everyone opens a lab of some variety and they do visits to tech clusters around the world and everyone spends a bit of time in Silicon Valley where the weather's good. Some of the firms doing some really exciting stuff, for example, Munich Re doing some cool stuff. Who are some of the people you think are doing the most exciting bits? Who who are the real trailblazers in this industry at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the the likes of Munich Re clearly have the deep pockets to be able to go and explore technology at Mm -hmm. its limits, which is really fascinating for the industry because they will drive change through the things that they discover. But actually, there's some really small startups as well that are independent or just backed by venture and not backed by the industry at all, who are also doing some quite innovative things. And I actually quite like the fact that we're beginning to see very, very bright people from other sectors of finance or other sectors of technology coming in and seeing insurance and reinsurance as an opportunity and trying to absolutely change the paradigm of how the business is done, which I think is absolutely key. I think fitting technology to match the business model that everybody has operated for the last 100 years does not generate the change or the efficiency that the incumbents really need. What they really need is to make the evolutionary step by looking at the way the business is done differently and leveraging technology to help them achieve that different way of managing customer relationships, managing underwriting and analytics, and then managing where the risk actually sits, whether it's their balance sheet or somebody else's. And I think technology is going to be really exciting and driving that change. I completely agree. I think, you know, in the same way that the first wave of fintech started taking some of the low-hanging fruit, there are a number of insurtechs out there Personally, I've not seen many that have blown my mind. What's your general view on on the temperature check on the industry? Um, There's a lot of customer-facing, what I would call putting design 
thinking and user experience onto the insurance product. We would um, call that lipstick on a pig. <laughs> that's that's another way of putting it. <laughs> and and that's perfectly valid. But then we have had price comparison websites and insurance for nearly 20 years now. Yeah. And actually some of those guys are still going strong and have significantly more premium flowing through them than any of the insure tech startups who've got mm-hmm. loads of funding. So that maybe tells you something that actually the customer relationship ownership is not as easy to get as you might think. Mm -hmm. But there are people out there who are looking to facilitate the industry with technology, which I think is quite a good place to be, because Mm -hmm. at the moment you see people either trying to own the customer, and they're going to have to spend such a huge amount of marketing money to do that in a reasonable way. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe they're not the right people to be doing that anyway. Maybe the insurance products should be sold by people who already have customer relationships, other product offerings, or product providers. So people who come into the market and can offer a way for incumbents on both the underwriting and the broking side to improve their own business processes, increase their efficiencies, I think they are going to be the sort of startups who drive quite transformational change. And by this, I'm thinking about distribution angles. I'm thinking about exchanges. I'm thinking about people who enable risk and capital to be matched in a more efficient manner, but allow brokers to play at the same time as an underwriter. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned people just then, and I think it's fascinating, particularly when I'm out there talking to various executives at different firms, whether brokers or underwriters, there's definitely this shift that's gone from a kind of Turkey's voting for Christmas. This is our industry. We don't need to change it to it's going to happen. Mm. We've got to start thinking about what the best way to tackle it is. What are you seeing in terms of that cultural shift? Can you sense that as well? Absolutely. Yeah, It's a shift that's been going on for more than 20, 25 years. And I think it was driven by financial technology originally with the advent of the insurance linked securities market and the entry of the capital markets into underwriting. That has fundamentally changed everything, including the returns that are possible to generate off insurance business. Mm -hmm. And so efficiency is key. And along comes technology and 25 years late, the insurance industry decides to embrace it fully. And now they're all really trying to get themselves to a position where they can reduce the expense ratio. They can begin to actually realize some of the benefits of technology as well. But there's going to be a lot of hurdles along the way. There's legacy issues. The legacy technology stack in the insurance and reinsurance industry is significant. And I've been through trying to transform that sort of thing in the travel industry, and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Some people say, well, just leave the legacy and it'll run itself and go and do all this shiny stuff on the front end with the customer. But actually, if you don't tie together the back and the front end, you're never going to generate the efficiency within your own business. So you have got to look at things sort of holistically and look at how you can change the model within your business and how technology sort of allows the sort of data and the risk to flow. One of the areas we've been looking at in terms of relationships is the changing relationship between the broker and the and the underwriter. Mm-hmm. And I guess you talk about legacy technology, it's also really legacy relationships. And the broker has become a very entrenched entity within the market. Do you think that technology will play a role in distribution costs? Yes, I absolutely do. I think the smart technology will facilitate making brokers' lives easier and more efficient, as well as underwriters. And I do think that there is a wave of competition coming between big reinsurers or insurers and big brokers. One of the things I've noticed over recent years is that everybody is offering their clients analytics, portfolio tools, all of these nice, shiny technology things that they can sell alongside with services and try and add value. Sometimes it's free. It's just a way of generating additional and sort of customer 
sort of loyalty, I guess, and retention. But that is going to turn into this service layer in the industry that we really didn't have apart from through third-party service providers. It wasn't something that was provided by either broking or underwriting. And I think the two are going to go head-to-head and competing to offer the best level of service they can. And that's one way they can own the client relationship. The brokers obviously currently own that relationship. They have the distribution, but increasingly the big reinsurers, the global players are just originating as much business as they can as directly as possible. And then we see on the other side, we've got the capital markets players where we have investment funds that are looking to access risk directly from a wholesale broker, for example, and just take that entire portfolio. So there's numerous people looking to shorten the value chain. There's people looking to increase the level of sort of customer satisfaction with the service they get along that value chain as well and trying to provide where maybe there were eight or nine steps in the value chain previously one company might try and do one two three and four and then try and get number five to seven to compress into one step as well to try and give their customers better value ultimately it's really good for the consumer because costs should come down yeah i'm skeptical about whether that cost saving will get passed on to insurance consumers very quickly because i think some of the margins in brokerage session fees and things that the industry has relied on for a long time are going to need to be replaced by other revenue generating fees one of the theses i've had for a while is that within the value chain if you actually don't add any value then what are you getting paid for and if you do add value then you need to find a way to monetize that because you have intellectual capital within your business Are you being paid for the intellectual capital or have you historically just been paid for your handshake relationships and your balance sheet? If you're a reinsurer and the only thing you've ever been paid for is stuffing risk on your balance sheet, then that really doesn't add very much value when you can create a pool of capital from the capital markets, which can do that more efficiently. And if you're a broker and all you've been doing is maintaining relationships and getting people to sign the same contract year after year after year, that's really not adding much customer value either, in my opinion. No, I'd agree. Although I do think that those relationship handshakes are actually called advisory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We think about what the UK has done in financial technology. We've become, well, it has become the jewel in our crown. It's definitely going to be the future of our financial services ecosystem. And the world has really taken a look at us and said, wow, you've managed to get the regulator on side with forward-thinking regulations, huge amounts of support from SCA sandboxes and Project Innovate through to really not being the uh, the police, but but actually being the people that, that want to handhold and make sure you're doing things in a robust, scalable, sensible way. Mm-hmm. We've got some amazing industry bodies in Innovate Finance. We've got amazing government support from the City of London, Department for International Trade, and so on, and just generally a great ecosystem, whether it's Canary Wharf, Old Street, uh, or the City of London. What do you think we need to do in insurance to maintain that centre of excellence standard that we've got and to really grow on the reputation that Lloyd's has created? That's a good question. I I completely agree. I think the UK has been leading the way on sort of financial technology actually for a lot longer than fintech has existed as a term. I can remember internet meetups in London nearly 20 years ago where people were talking about finance and there were people from banks attending to meet people from startups and design companies and things. It's been something that's been ongoing in London for a long time. On the insurance side, there are steps definitely being taken. There's a number of initiatives where you see these groups coming together to try and corral the London and Lloyd's market into modernising itself. I'm not sure that modernising a market 
but trying to keep everybody happy is going to work. I think the London market and the insurance market generally still operates in a very similar way to how it did 100 odd years ago. I think there is a need for more radical change potentially in the way people buy coverage. And I'm not talking about consumer coverage here, although that is changing obviously with technology and people having many more touch points with customers. But actually on the sort of risk transfer and reinsurance side, people haven't really changed the way they buy coverage for a long time. And there's significant room for improvement there. There's also significant room for the protection buying for large corporates, for example, to be done at the CFO level rather than at the risk manager level. CFOs obviously understand protecting shareholders and balance sheet. Risk managers understand protecting assets and business lines, um, which are two different things. Um, And often that ends up with gaps. So you often see in catastrophes that companies just wipe out their insurance coverage straight away and they sometimes struggle to recover. Or we see terrible cases of people being hit by catastrophes and then upping sticks and moving a factory to another country, leaving a whole community with no no sort of business functioning in their area anymore. And insurance is one of the key things for helping in this area and sort of development and resilience in London should be positioning itself as a leader in that respect because there's a lot of good companies here. That's a great point. Do you think there's more, and I guess this probably treads the... uh, the line on on ethics and stuff that people don't like talking about when they're being recorded. But do you think there's more that insurance companies can do, particularly in catastrophe scenarios, Mm -hmm. to support communities rather than just provide capital injections to rehabilitate? I think it's how the capital is provided. I mean, historically, there was very little insurance in developing countries at all. Nowadays, there's quite a lot, and a lot of it is what we call parametric-based, so it pays out quickly, but there could be a lot more. It's not really down to the insurance industry doing much differently apart from maybe being better at selling itself. But um, regulatory-wise, there is a lot that government should be doing and there's a lot that international companies should be doing to protect themselves, the communities, their workers, all of those things. They don't buy enough protection at the moment. That's one of the key issues. The protection gaps that everybody loves to talk about is an enormous opportunity for places like London and the rest of the world and the markets to solve but it needs not just industry support, it needs government support, regulatory support, the whole works. I think you just said it, people don't buy insurance, they get sold it. So, yeah. In some countries, insurance is seen as a bit of a tax, something yeah. that you're just kind of forced to do. I mean, I know, I know a lot of us think the same, that we, we renew like that our car, car insurance yeah. once a year, you don't have any accidents, and the next year it's gone up, and yeah. <laughs> you're not really getting much from it, or it doesn't feel you're getting much from it. But then obviously when the worst happens... then it really does come into its own. So maybe it's, um, I don't know, I've got a bit of a theory that I've been wanting to write up for a while about um, insurance products being too all or nothing. Often your protection is you have to have the worst possible event happen and then you get paid out and it really supports you to recover. But if something relatively minor happens but it's enough to knock you sometimes your insurance just doesn't do anything doesn't respond or you're better off not to to claim yeah or you're better off not claiming because it puts your costs up in the future yeah so it's how can we change the paradigm of insurance to actually support people through the needs that they have during their life i guess and then how does the industry support that and how does reinsurance capital and how do we make the most of the efficiencies of things like the capital markets Mm. plus Mm. technology to deliver a product that's better for the consumer on the front end yeah you're absolutely right it's changing that relationship between the insurer and the customer i buy my insurance and i put it in my drawer and i hope never to see it again unfortunately i share my car with my wife so i usually do see it again but (laughs) (laughs) hopefully she won't listen to this um 
talent is obviously a hugely talked about topic, particularly when we're talking about technology. Mm-hmm. Um, technology is not trivial and it, it requires people to be reskilled. It requires a totally different type of executive today. Many of the boards don't have it, technology executive representation. Mm-hmm. What's your view on how we foster more talent, particularly in the UK again? It's my patriotism coming through, but, but generally in the industry. Do you think there are schemes, initiatives that we should be thinking about? Um. Uh, hard to say anything specific on what we should do, given that's not my area, but definitely the industry still needs to work on selling itself to millennials and college graduates. Insurance is still seen as a fairly boring industry to go into. I know when I try to explain to my friends what I do, they're like, you've written 10,000 articles about reinsurance. <laughs> How on earth do you do that without falling asleep? But, <laughs> um I mean, the the insurance industry has everything that millennials could possibly want, in my opinion. You have a highly data-driven, analytical, technical industry that touches on issues to do with resilience, climate, developing countries, protecting society, all of the things that you would really think that you might want in terms of job fulfillment or in terms of forward-looking, socially proactive business, insurance can do and does do. But it doesn't really get a look in sometimes because people see it as, I don't know, guys in black suits wandering around with reams of paper under their arms in the city of London, which unfortunately we do still see today. But the industry itself has a lot going for it that should attract young people. How you get technology expertise in the industry is a bit different And actually, I've seen people hiring possibly what I would consider sometimes the wrong type of technology people. They're getting people who are very, very specifically technical, have been CTOs perhaps and things like that. And you're not getting an overarching view of how technology impacts human behavior, which is really, really key if you want to own customer relationships, which everybody seems to want to do at the moment. Deep technical expertise is obviously required, but also an understanding of user experience, design, how that plays into how the value chain of insurance can be reimagined using sort of user-friendly, customer-friendly, and um, putting marketing and acquisition onto the front end of that. It requires a completely different set of skills to a CTO, and um, a lot of the companies I see are trying to sort of mould technology people into sort of doing everything to do with the internet for them Um, and it doesn't quite work like that there's a a wide range of skills that need to be brought to bear but in terms of attracting people that's really down to the industry to talk about what it does better yeah back in the day i guess the lure to go into the insurance industry was was relationship building people Mm. that were good with people would tend to be good at the job Mm. uh, and those pints didn't pour themselves um but I think the modern day industry, and I was talking about this recently with a chat from MasterCard, young people want to be able to exercise creativity and technology allows them to do that. They can achieve anything, they can reimagine anything. And I think where you're talking about unpacking and unpicking uh, the value chain as it is today and putting it back together in a way that makes it more efficient, cheaper, more effective, not just for the consumer, but also for the firm. That's pretty exciting. Mm. And uh, and I think naturally, once that starts to happen, you'll start to see some really, really talented young people come to the forefront as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's telling that my first the 10 years in the industry, I was the youngest person at any conference I went to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nowadays, I am now at least in the top half of the age bracket there, which yeah. is great to see. There are a lot of young people coming into the industry. It's not just that I've got older. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that will continue. And yeah, I mean, anybody who looks for a real challenge that actually has potential societal impacts but also yeah it's creative it's analytical it's got science and technology at its absolute core because that's risk and that's underwriting this should be a really attractive place to be yeah there was one thing for sure that the insurance industry really knows how to do events i've been to some <laughs> i've been to some very good ones Thank you, Steve. I think enough of the, the academic questions for, for a man that has written 10,000 articles on reinsurance. We'll park the insurance side of things for a moment. Sure. We always like to ask a few, uh, a few more personal questions, bits, you know, talking about your career. I think before we go into those, it'd be great if you could just give our readers a, a bit of an overview on Artemis and reinsurance news. Sure. Kind of demystify what it is you do every day. Sure. So um, Artemis, which is Artemis.bm, Bermudian domain name although it's always been run from Brighton, is the largest platform readership in insurance-linked securities. So we have a very specific focus on, I guess, two things. One is where the capital markets get involved in insurance and reinsurance, where we have fund managers accessing risk in the same way as an insurer or reinsurer and providing pension fund capital directly to the people who need it. Um, And then on the other side, it's kind of innovation within insurance that's going to drive change in the value chain and provide greater opportunity for the capital markets to get involved. So that's everything from different types of triggers like parametric triggers, but also um, sort of value chain compression and how people bring the capital more directly to the risk. So that's kind of what we cover on Artemis. And then reinsurance news is more broadly reinsurance industry news, analysis, insight, interviews with leaders in the industry, that kind of thing. And really the one thing that I've always thought is that as a business-to-business publisher, we're not trying to make a name for ourselves by breaking news that catches people out. We're trying to create places that the industry can kind of coalesce around, find interesting information, find it useful, help them in their day jobs, quick and easy access to data and information. So creating large relevant audiences is kind of what I've done for 20 odd years. And that seems to be working with the two platforms, which is nice. Awesome. And in terms of events, where do you host those? Yeah, I have one event in July in Singapore every year. We've now done three of those. And then the other event is in New York and the next one on the 1st of February. They are both on the Artemis brand. They're both very specifically on insurance linked securities. Um, The event in New York in February will have somewhere around 325 attendees, I would imagine. And they're a lot of fun, and I definitely plan to do more of them. 326, because oh, I'll be there. Um, <laughs> don't forget us. We're HQ'd in uh, Seven World Trade in New York. So sure. We'll definitely Just... be there to support. So to the, the personal questions, when I say personal questions, like I'm about to ask something very revealing. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> um, we always ask who people's role models have been. I, I've been very fortunate. I had some great role models. And it's a great way to learn. And I think particularly, you know, the insurance industry has always been good at that sort of thing. Yep. Who have been some of your mentors and role models? I guess I, I would have to mention a man called Rowan Douglas, who is um, currently CEO of Science Capital and Policy at Willis Towers Watson. Now, he was the founder of the internet company I joined in late 1995. And so he was the inspiration for Artemis. He's the person who taught me everything I know about insurance and risk. He wasn't the most experienced internet person at the time, but he had seen the internet 
and just decided that this was like this platform that the insurance industry should be making the most of to try and get information as fast as possible to try and deliver analytics in a better way. And yeah, without him, I definitely wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. He took a chance on employing somebody who had no internet experience in an internet company. So thank you, Ryan, for that. And he now spends half his time with the World Bank and the UN talking about how to close this disaster protection gap. So he's uh, gone on to do great things as well in the industry. And other than that, I guess I'm very lucky that I've just met a lot of really senior people in the industry. And uh, (laughs) one of the the most gratifying things was when I went to a conference about probably about five or six years ago. And this lady came up to me and said, you know, I print out everything you write every morning and put it on my boss's desk for him because he wants to read it as soon as it's been written by you. And I asked who it was, and it was one of the CEOs of one of the biggest reinsurance companies in the world. That's amazing. Which is great, um, just to think that somebody actually listens and thinks that I might have an opinion that matters in the industry, which is nice. Yeah. Um, and now apparently 60-odd thousand people think that, so which is great. Amazing. Hopefully they're not all printing, because otherwise there wouldn't be any more rainforest. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, um, it's an industry where... There are some really, really clever, bright, smart people, and I'm lucky that a lot of them have um, wanted to share time with me and insight on the industry, which helps me to learn more. Awesome. Steve, thank you so much. Really appreciate your insights. You've been someone we've admired previously from afar. Now we can admire you up close. And close and personal. Re-listen to this, uh, this podcast when we miss you. Great, thank, thank you. you. Really appreciate it, and uh, see you in New York in February. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no ob- obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.